Today on this edition of the Forest City Church Podcast, lead pastor Eric Parks kicks off a new series titled iHeart. This message is titled, Why Are Christians So Mean? Hey everybody. Um, you, you know, uh, I was thinking about this this week. I've got uh, a, a 13-year-old and an 18-year-old, and um, I'm reminded on a regular basis that there are things that they say and do that I have no idea what it means. Anybody else? You ever hear some young people's talking about something or saying something or referencing something? Like They'll have whole 15-minute conversations where I leave the room and go, I have no idea what's going on. Anybody else? You know, you have one of those moments? I was thinking about this, this whole idea of like, um, you know, the, the, the fact that so much stuff gets lost in translation, and I came across some funny little signs that I think these are the same sort of moments where you look at these signs, and if you're anything like me, you go, I have no idea what that means. So this is the first sign I saw, reserved for drive through parking only. <laughs> what? Okay, next sign. This one, this one cracks me up. No pets allowed, but all pets must be on leashes. Okay, which is it? I don't know. Here's another one. I don't even have to say anything. What does that mean? And then this one's just funny. Flu, now available. Bro, <laughs> you ever had these moments where you go, what does that mean? And I was thinking, when we think about our faith... Here's a question we have to answer. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does that mean? Like for real? Now there are phrases that culture has applied or attached. We do that sometimes. Call ourselves evangelicals or churchgoers or Christ followers. But ultimately, here's the question for a city. What does it mean to be a Christian? Because here's the truth. You can go to lots of parts of this country and the definition of Christian is way different. In this room, if we all just took a quiz real quick, I would bet you that there are a lot of different ways that we think about what it means to be a Christian. Some of those places, some of those spaces, some of those words are really good. You know, Christians are churchgoers and they show up at church and they do good things. But you know, I've traveled the world enough to tell you that there are also spaces, parts of the world that I've gone to, that is not what it means to be a Christian there. The Christians mean arrogant, morally corrupt, manipulative Westerners. What does it mean? See, this really matters. In fact, what you and I decide it means to be a Christian will be how we organize our lives. What you believe it means to be a Christian ultimately will have a lot to say in how you walk out your faith. So what does it mean to be a Christian? Now, Christian, let me go back and give you some context. This phrase, right, this phrase Christian, it started being used um, and being applied to followers of Jesus in Antioch. Before that, followers of Jesus were simply called disciples. That's what they were called. And the New Testament tells us, kind of gives us this story, like disciple and Christian, they mean the same thing, or they're supposed to. You know, early on in the New Testament, 
we see Jesus, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he sees two brothers, right? Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And in that moment, he begins to lay out what it means to be a disciple, right? Because he says to them, hey, you two, come follow me. He would be their rabbi. These would be disciples. They would learn everything that he did, and then they would repeat it. He would do this again. He found two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, did the same thing. And Matthew, he said, come follow me. Come do as I do. And so this is what we're going to wrestle with over the next five weeks. What does it mean to do as he did? Ultimately, what does it look like to be disciples, to be Christians, to be followers of Jesus? Whatever phrase you use, what does it mean for us? And the reality is that if we're going to get serious about what it means to be a Christian in Rockford, Illinois then there's one verse that we're going to hone in on for the next five weeks, and we're just going to hammer it home because this is what Jesus says. Honestly, in many ways, he answers this question. In John chapter 13, verse 34, here's what Jesus says. He says, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. Now listen to this. This is what he says. By this, everyone will know. Everybody, all of culture, all your friends, by this, how we love each other, that you're my disciple. If you love one another, if you love. And so next week, over the next five weeks, we're going to take the four different Greek words that the Bible talks about as it lays out this idea of love. Love. Love at the center of our faith. Love is what it means to be Christian. So if that's true, it seems ironic to me. Because love, unfortunately, is not how we're described anymore. Now what I'm about, the next few minutes, for some of you, it's just going to make you mad. So I'm going to tell you right now, put your phones down, don't write anything, don't start typing me an email. It's going to make you mad. But here's the truth. In 2018, Barna did some research. If you don't know about Barna Group, Barna does is they're, they're the quintessential research group in the Christian space. They did research on perceptions of Christians by Christians and perceptions of us from the outside world. And of course, when we talk to each other and we describe each other, we use really nice terms like, oh, nice people, loving, followers of Jesus. But when people who aren't Christians are asked about us, you want to hear the words that get used? Get ready. It ain't nice. Narrow-minded, misogynistic, racist, uptight, hateful, angry. That's what the world thinks of us. And guess what word didn't make the list? Loving. Jesus says, the world will know you by your love. And the world that's looking on to us, they don't even use that phrase about us. They don't talk about us in those terms. Dallas Willard, who is probably one of the most influential figures in how I think, because the truth is, he taught John Ortberg, you know, one of our Rockford boys, and John, really, I'm just a cheap imitation of John Ortberg. Dallas Willard says this. He said, why are Christians so mean? 
He said, Christians are mean in proportion to when they value being right over being like Christ. Now sit in that for a minute. The reason why Christians are so mean is that too many of us value being right over being like Jesus. You see, this is a problem, guys, because we are too mean. I know this firsthand. We are too mean to each other. Now listen, Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul lays out some things, and I want to just sort of show you what Paul says, because Jesus lays it out. It should be enough right there in front of us that this is how everybody's going to know us, and we should love each other fiercely, right? But the Apostle Paul goes on in Colossians 3. and Colossians 3, he begins to envision what a new life with Jesus would look like. So he's talking to you right now. Like if you claim faith, if you like cross the line of faith, if you repented and said, I want a new life, he said, listen, there's three things we should put away. Three things that we should work day in, day out to remove from our lives. Look at what he says, Colossians 3. He said, so put to death, which is pretty strong language, He says, put to death the sinful earthly things lurking in you, right? These things from the past. And then he goes out to lay them, he goes on to lay them out. He says, have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. So he says, listen, sexual sin, we should work to remove these from our lives. Then he says this, number two, don't be greedy, For greedy people, they're idolaters. They worship the things of the world because of these sins. The anger of God is coming. You used to do these things in your life when you were still a part of this world. And then he lays out the third. He says in verse eight, but now is the time to get rid of anger and rage and malicious behavior and slander and dirty language. Do you know what he's saying? Stop being mean. Do you realize the Apostle Paul puts meanness in the same category as greed and sexual sin? That's not me, folks. I didn't write this. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. He says, we have to put these things to death. The denunciation of sexual misconduct is probably what our modern church is most known for. But we don't even pay attention to being mean. How do I know that? Ah, Facebook. I, mean, I just got to go read Facebook. Right? Some of you are already going down going, I might need to delete some things on of Facebook. <laughs> Look, I'm not trying to make us feel bad. I'm trying to address the reality that Jesus said, this world out there who doesn't know me yet will know me primarily by how you love not by how right you are. You see, the Bible teaches us this, guys. This is what the Bible teaches us. That right theology does not give us the right to mistreat other people. Right? I mean, consider what the Apostle Paul lays out in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, the problem with this verse is we use it all the time in weddings. And when we use it in weddings, I don't know, we sort of see this as like, ah, niceties. Like, when the Apostle Paul lays this out in Corinthians, that these are niceties. This is like, this is pleasant and platitudes. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, look, love is patient, love and kind. You know this. You're like, yeah, love is patient, love is kind. 
Eh, whatever, boring. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud, I get it, or rude, whatever, right? We're just kind of like, oh, brother, bunch of snowflakes. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It doesn't rejoice about injustice or rejoices whenever truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful, endures through every circumstance. See, see, this is what you have to understand. When the Apostle Paul writes this, he's not writing the beginning of a love song. It's not niceties or platitudes. He's actually describing Something Actually, he's describing someone. And if we don't understand this, then we can take this verse and sort of say it at weddings, but excuse our bad behavior. See, our rabbi is being described in this verse. If you are a follower of Jesus, this verse is a description of him. Well, think about it. You could go through every one. Love is patient, love is kind. I just put Jesus was patient and Jesus was kind. Well, how do we know? I mean, Matthew chapter eight, when he heals the leper, when the leper comes to him, this leper who's been alienated from family and friends, who, by the way, if Jesus gets even close to, because he's a rabbi, he's defiled, and then he has to go through an entire cleansing process, this leper who's an alien, comes to Jesus, and Jesus touches him and heals him, touches him and heals him. Jesus was kind. He was never rude. In fact, if you look in John chapter four, woman at the well, right? She was a Samaritan. Now, what you have to understand about Samaritans is that Jews hate, hated Samaritans, hated them. If there was anybody who was like, I mean, you think like our political system is jacked up? These two people make Democrats and Republicans look like they're in a love affair. They hate each other. Why? Because the Assyrians, years, years, years earlier, had brought Jews into captivity. How they brought them into captivity was awful. They put giant hooks into their jaws and led them into captivity. Then they bred with them, and as they did, these half-breeds, they were Samaritans, so the Jews hated them. They were awful to them. What does Jesus do in the midday sun? Is he rude? Does he call her out? No. This is what he did. He went and sat with her. And he kept no record of wrong, did he? How do we know this? Because his number one guy, number one guy, John chapter 21, a few chapter before, betrays him. Doesn't claim to know Jesus. He says, I don't know him. Then he uses bad language. I don't know this guy. And Jesus finds him on a shore, and what does he do? Does he condemn him or yell at him or tell him how awful he is or what a backstabber? Is there a list of things he has to do? Listen, I know how it works. I'm married. I'd like to say I don't keep a list of right or wrong. We do, right? 
somewhere deep down in our brain, and I pull it out at just the right time when I want to make a point. Remember that thing you did? Because if you didn't do what you did, then I wouldn't do what I'm doing, right? My behavior is because of you. I know all the married couples are nudging each other. This isn't what Jesus did. Jesus says, hey, Peter, you love my sheep? In other words, he's inviting him back in. He's like, I know. Do you love my sheep? Hey, go feed them. Go do what you've been called to do. It's all good. And he always protected, didn't he? He always protected. John chapter 8. We know that this woman is caught in adultery. And they're going to... They're going to stone her. It's the worst kind of death. Here's Jesus, a rabbi, who could have done many things. Like, he could have just pretended not to see it, blended into the background, been a bystander. But Jesus steps in front. And then he says, you, you, you that don't have sin, why don't you throw the first stone at this lady? Everybody drops their stone, right? This is what Jesus did. I mean, when we see 1 Corinthians, what we have to understand is that this isn't niceties. It's not a poem that goes on a wall. It's a description of the rabbi we've chosen to follow, i.e., if we are disciples then we're supposed to look and love like Jesus. That should be a part of our everyday life. This should be a part of how we live. And the truth is, like, when we see or we experience these moments, there is something that comes alive in us. I'll never forget this. Graham, Graham's the quietest of our three, right? Um, and he sort of like runs on, in his own space and he has his own sort of thing and he wouldn't know a feeling if it hit him in the face, right? He's your typical 18-year-old kid. And, and, and growing up, Graham was always, he was pretty to himself, right? Just to himself. We were out, he, he played lacrosse. Both of my boys grew up playing lacrosse. Again, another thing I don't understand, um, but he was probably 11 years old. Uh, we were on a lacrosse field. About halfway through the game, um, there was uh, the coach's son, which was a really good friend of Graham's. His name was Hudson. Hudson was a pretty small kid, right? Pretty small kid. And I don't know if you remember what it was like being 11, but 11, 12, 13, there's a big variance between sizes. You can have kids that are three feet tall and kids that are six foot seven, right? All in the same little age group. Well, there was one kid on the other team who was, I mean, a man among boys. And he was making his presence known. He was just annihilating these small little guys, running them over, whacking them with his stick. I mean, doing the things that six foot high, six foot tall, 12, 11, 12 year olds do. Well, all game long, he was on Hudson, this little bitty guy on our team just going after him, going after him. And all of a sudden, I don't know what happened in Graham, a holy discontent. 
I see him out of nowhere, and I don't know how he does it. You know how you hear these stories where people are able to lift up a car, and you know, he, Graham is just a little guy. He has superhuman strength out of nowhere. He picks up the kid that was six feet tall after he just knocked down Hudson with his stick in the air, looks at him, throws him on the ground, and stands over the top of him like this. Of course he gets penalized. It's a five-minute, you know, like, major penalty. And, of course, you know, he's walking off the field. And secretly, I couldn't have been more proud. <laughs> My boy. But see, here, here's what happened. Graham came off the field, and Hudson's dad came over to me, and he's like, I got to tell you, that was the coolest moment ever. Like, <laughs> your son's standing up for my kid. Like, that meant something. Now, I'm not suggesting we should be face-planting people when we defend. <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that when we see someone defend someone who needs defending, when we step in that gap, something does happen in our hearts. See, this is what Jesus asks us to do as followers of him. To stand in the gap for people people who need our voice, our help. You know, we talk about generosity and risk-taking and we bring world vision here and we have these conversations. This is what it means, right? This is what it means. Now, a bunch of you, you're like, I'm not gonna run. Baloney, this year you're running. I'm gonna find you. I'm going to remind you of this message. You're a follower of Jesus. We're running. <laughs> and here's why. Here's why. Listen. When we begin the practice of being like Jesus, when we begin the practice of stepping out in spaces where you go, this isn't my problem. That isn't my deal. I don't like to run. I don't. Listen. When we begin the practice, what begins to happen is we're beginning to reshape what people think of Christians. And I know what you think. You're like, who cares? Who cares what people think about Christians? Well, it does matter. It does matter. Because people's first interaction with Jesus is probably through you. Amen. Right? See, you see, when the world looks on and sees a group of people who, for whatever reason, stand up and do right, Love with crazy abandonment. I'm telling you, there's something about it that is attractional. It's not my voice. It's not Carrington singing. It is a group of people who crazy love like Jesus. I'm telling you, it is attractional. People begin to go, hey, something's going on over there. Something's happening in that church. I don't really like the preacher much, but boy, those people love. Listen. Arrogance, pride, we really don't want it in our lives. And, and, and sometimes pride makes us, we want so bad to be on the right side. But humility wants us to serve as God's voice of healing to those who are on the wrong side. Maybe it's not so much right and wrong. Maybe it's just a space where we start to live and say, listen, here's what Jesus has done for me. Let me tell you my story and let me love you no matter what. No matter what. I don't care. You come with me to church. Watch us online. Doesn't really matter to me. I'm just going to love you. 
It's not about being on the right side. And the truth is the right side is Jesus' side anyway, right? Because we get real self-righteous. Look, a bunch of you like that we hung this cross up here. I do too. I think it's cool. You realize without that, all of us, we're just a broken mess. Your great equalizer is that thing, not, not something you did. The right side is there. Jesus shows us the way. I was reading this article, and I wanted to share it with you because I think it speaks to what we're feeling these days, or at least what I'm feeling. It was an article that was posted in the Lexington Herald, and it was written by a guy named Paul Prather. He's a pastor. But he was writing in response to Gallup, and that organization had put out some information, really some research about how the church in America is declining at such a rapid pace. And I just want to read some excerpts because I think he captures what so many people are feeling. He said this. He said, in those columns... He wrote a few columns for the Lexington Herald. I speculate about the decline of the U.S. church, of church membership as reported by Gallup. I've been thinking about my dad, who passed away in 2012. He preached for 60 years. He was my primary mentor in our ministry, and he was also my partner when for several years we co-pastored a congregation I now lead. In those columns that I wrote, I speculated about the decline of the U.S. church as reported by Gallup. Some responses I received, they were respectful, even if the writers disagreed with my hypothesis about what's causing membership to decline. But many, if not most, were neither respectful nor kind. I was struck by two prevailing sentiments from Christian writers, anger and arrogance. People who claimed faith blamed it on other people. Liberals were convinced the decline was conservatives' fault. Conservatives were convinced it was the liberals' fault. And as I read those emails, I kept thinking, if this is what the discussion of faith looks like, no wonder people are leaving houses of worship. I don't think anybody believed in God more radically than my father did. He was a former Southern Baptist turned holy roller. He spoke in tongues, laid hands on the sick, prophesied whenever the spirit moved him. He stopped at gas stations, and while he was there, he led the station attendants to Christ. Spiritually speaking, he was a wild man. And sometimes he embarrassed me, but he was defined by two virtues. Humility and love. He goes on to write, the whole gospel can be summed up in one word, I recall dad telling us on Sunday. It's about love, and that's it. He, just, he didn't just talk the talk, he walked the walk, and gee, I miss him. His being here wouldn't reverse the downward trend in U.S. church membership, but it might serve as an antidote to some of the grandiosity and bile circulating these days. He drew folks to God instead of running them off. The face of his Christ bore a smile for everyone. Dad taught me that it's hard for people to resist the power of love. And Christians' job is to help them see God's love at work. 
That's our job. You see, there is an onlooking world. And they are judging who Jesus is based on you and me. He, they look at Jesus' disciples and they make their decisions about who God is based on us. I was thinking about what's the best visual representation. Now, there was a movie that entered into like our, our cultural idiom back when I was like a teenager, really young. Now, I'm not suggesting this is a movie that you should have your teenagers watch. I don't know why my dad let me watch it, but he did. The movie was called The Godfather. Now, The Godfather's based on a book, but there's a character in The Godfather that made me think about this whole idea of how we love and how it represents Jesus. It wasn't a character per se. It's a role in the film. The role was what was called a consigliere. Now, for those of you that haven't seen the movie or don't, haven't read the book, basically a consigliere in this movie was like the boss's right-hand guy. I mean, it was more than a right-hand guy. This guy was like advisor and counselor. But when he walked into a space, everybody assumed that he spoke for the boss. So when a consigliere showed up and said whatever it is that came out of his mouth... Everybody in the room, they assumed he's speaking for the boss. That's what consigliaries do. That's what a consigliere is. And I thought, isn't that kind of what we are? We, we are the boss's consigliere. At work, at school, in your home. In every conversation, every email, every Facebook post, we are his consigliere. And there is a world that is looking on. And they are judging our boss based on you. And this is why Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciple. Not by how right you are. Not by how many Bible verses that you know. Not by how smart you are. Not by how many small groups you've led, attended. Not by your theological degree. Not by how big your church is. They'll know you, little consigliere, based on how you love each other. And this is why the Apostle Paul says this. As you go on in Colossians 3, he says, so chosen by God for this new life of love, this is us, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Everywhere we go, folks, we should be dressed in compassion and kindness and humility and quiet strength and discipline, be even tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It is your basic, all-purpose garment. It is Steve Carter's version of black jeans. <laughs> right? This is love. It's our all-purpose garment. Never be without it. We should, we should mark every moment of our lives to trying to make it look as Jesus made his life look. 
that love should pour out from us in all settings, in all circumstances. Does that mean you're going to get it right all the time? No, no. But that's why we have to be just quick, quick to ask for forgiveness, quick to forgive. 1 Corinthians 13 says three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. I threw out this phrase, and I can say it again, that sometimes when we have these talks, people can put their hands in their pocket and go, oh, this love stuff, bunch of snowflakes. You ever seen a snowflake get nailed to a cross? Because the truth is, living the way that Jesus did, it's not easy. It's way easier to hold a grudge. Come on, right? Sometimes it's really fun to hold a grudge. It's way easier to be angry and mean. It's way easier to lash out and hold on to things. It's easier to draw lines in the sand, us and them. That's the easy stuff. You know what's hard? It's hard to do what Jesus did. To protect, to defend. To always speak kindness and love, even when someone says mean things to you. And I've been praying this prayer this last week. My wife sent this to me. It's written by somebody anonymously, but this has been my prayer this week. And in this, I hope as a church, you'll join me in this prayer. The prayer is simply, God, keep my anger from becoming meanness. Keep my sorrow from collapsing into self-pity. Keep my heart soft enough to keep breaking. Keep my discontent pointed towards justice, not cruelty. And remind me that all of this, all of this is for love. Keep me fiercely kind. I'm not asking you to join me in a kindness campaign. I'm just asking you to take seriously the things that Jesus asks of his disciples. Because that's what it means to be a Christian. Let's pray. God, help us this day. Reflect the love that was given to us through your death on the cross. May words begin to be used about us as your followers that include love and kind and compassionate and forgiving. Not because we are, but because you are. And may your spirit lead us to be a place of radical love, unrelenting kindness, a place for anyone and everyone. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Forest City Church lead pastor Eric Parks with the message, Why Are Christians So Mean? You can watch the online version of this message by going to youtube.com slash Church. Thanks for listening.